Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Roger Grimes. Roger is a 34-year a computer security veteran, author of 13 books and over 1,300 articles on computer security. He's often quoted in national media, including the Wall Street Journal, which is where I found him, Newsweek, and is a keynote speaker at national computer security conferences. Very well regarded and has deep expertise in this space. Roger, maybe let's start with kind of the state of play. We're recording this in September of 2023. Cybersecurity continues to be a very confusing landscape for folks that aren't in the world. Could you maybe give us a little bit of just status of of where we are on a threat assessment basis as of today? Yeah, sure. I think, and I have been doing this, I think going on 35 years now, the overall threats are still the same overall threats, meaning social engineering and phishing were the biggest threats 30, 40 years ago. They're still the biggest threats by far. Social engineering and phishing are involved in about 70 to 90% of all successful attacks. Unpatched software has long been the number two. Although some places in the history, they kind of switched out between number one and number two. But today, unpatched software is involved in about 20 to 40% of successful attacks. I think FireEye or maybe as Mandian said, right now it's about 33% of successful attacks involve unpatched software and firmware. And then everything else you can think of really only adds up to about 10%. But certainly what's changed, I think, at least going to change, which everybody thinks is going to change, is the impact of AI, large learning language models, chat GPT and the like, on allowing less professional hackers to appear more professional. So that's certainly the, the types of attacks you can get aren't that bad. I'm not even that worried about AI and attacks. I think AI is changing the world. But 
there, it, it's pretty bad already. I mean, how much worse can AI make it? It's like you have a gate that's 100 miles tall, full of malware and attacks, and AI is going to add like another mile. It's a big deal, I guess, but it's pretty bad already, even without the AI. So let's kind of maybe define some of these terms for folks that aren't as familiar. You mentioned social engineering, phishing, and unpatched software. Could you maybe go through each of those and just give a, a description, could be high level of, of what we're talking sure. about here? Yeah. Social engineering is essentially a scam where somebody typically, not all the time, but typically they're pretending to be somebody or a brand like Microsoft or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or something, or an organization like law enforcement or the tax authorities or something like that, that you would otherwise trust. And if you knew it was a random stranger that you didn't know in West Africa. So it's somebody pretending to be somebody, could be pretending to be your boss or your friend or something like that, or a brand. And they're attempting to get you to do something, an action that is against your own interest or your organization's own interest. About half the time, it's revealing your login information so they can steal it and reuse it in an unauthorized way. Or they could be getting you to reveal information like your W-2 or your credit card information, or they're getting you to run what's called a Trojan horse program, which is a malicious malware program that will take over your computer and can break into your computer and your company's computers and things like that. That's uh, social engineering in a nutshell. It's a criminal scam. Phishing is essentially social engineering using electronic media. Uh, you can be scammed all kinds of different ways. You can be scammed in person. You can be scammed by someone calling you on the phone, which we actually call voice phishing or vishing. You can be scammed. Probably the most common way is through email. That's probably 80, 90% of this phishing scams. You can be scammed by going to the wrong website, or maybe you go to a legitimate website that happens to be compromised at that moment. You can be scammed through SMS. Smishing, we call it. SMS phishing, you get that text message. You can be scammed because someone sends you a QR code or you accidentally scan the wrong QR code in the parking lot or in a business or someone's placed a fraudulent QR code there instead of a legitimate one. Uh, you can be scammed in social media. There's literally all these ways, different ways you can be scammed and social engineered. And then typical when you hear phishing though, that just means like kind of electronic social engineering. If I meet you in the street and I try to scam you, that's not phishing. That's me just trying to scam you. But if I send you an email or a text message or social media thing and I'm trying to scam you, we'll call that phishing. And then the last one was the unpatched software. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, all the software and what's called firmware, that would be embedded software that's on devices like internet routers and things like that. Uh, your Wi-Fi routers, your cable modems, they have firmware, which is kind of hard-coded software instructions. All of them contain bugs. So imagine that you've typed in a, a term paper, you're writing a paper for your teacher or something like that. It's pretty common that when you type up a paper that you're going to have errors in it and need to correct it and fix the typos later so it reads better. That's essentially what you're doing when you're trying to patch or update software. Every bit of software and firmware code that has ever been written has one or more bugs in it, errors and mistakes. And oftentimes those mistakes and those bugs uh, allow malicious intruders to take advantage of that bug. And then to try to do something harmful to us, uh, about 30 today, about 33%, according to Mandiant, about 33% of all successful uh, digital exploits 
involve an attacker uh, abusing unpatched software, which usually means that the person being successfully attacked, they usually have software or firmware that has been patched. The, the legitimate vendor has provided the patch, but the person or the organization just didn't get around to applying the patch. Or in some cases, it could be that a patch is not yet available. And if that's the case, we call it a zero day, saying, you know, you have zero days to prepare for this because there's no known patch out there. But the vast majority of these unpatched software exploits are just uh, attackers taking advantage of stuff that should have been patched. Many times should have been patched months or years ago, uh, and but taking advantage of it because people or the organization didn't patch it yet. And let me say, it's not always easy. Like, even me, I'm a computer security expert, you know, been doing it 35 years. But I can't tell you, is my cable modem patched or not? My cable provider that gives me internet access and TV doesn't allow me into the cable modem. I'm just taking it on faith that they're keeping it up to date. Although a lot of times in the past when I have been able to get in as admin on my cable modem, I found that it's been unpatched and they hadn't applied the latest patches. So sometimes it can be really, really difficult to know if you're patched or not. But I will say that for the software that you're running, if you're running Microsoft Windows, you're running Apple, you're running Linux, you're running a Google Chrome OS or something like that, you, you should make sure that you keep it up to date. And when Microsoft and Google and Apple say, hey, you should apply this update, you should apply it. So a lot of things you referenced are have become part of just the modern day vernacular. We're familiar with the terms. We see them in the news, et cetera. And you mentioned that these have been around for a while now. Do you think things are getting worse generally or better? Are the bad guys winning or are the good guys catching up? That's funny, Brian. I've been asked that question at least once a year, every year I've been in the cybersecurity industry, uh, so 35 years, and I've always answered, yes, it's getting worse. Every year, I mean, like at least the last 10 years, I'm like, how can it get worse? Like ransomware is just taking over, they're completely taking over entire companies, cities, law enforcement, and we're trying our best to fight it. But, you know, like I ransomware is really bad and it can take over almost any company. How does it usually take those companies or organizations over social engineering or unpatched software or people reusing passwords or something like that? So when someone says, is it going to get worse? Probably. And only because the other 33 years that someone's asked me that question, when I said, yes, I think it's going to get worse. No matter how much I was befuddled in my own head thinking, how could it get worse? It did get worse. And by worse, meaning that the attacks are more prolific, they're more damaging, they're causing more operational interruption, and they, you know, they seem to be a bit more vicious. You know, when you've got like ransomware people taking down hospitals where it's actually killing people, it's hard to think that it could get worse. It, it's, I don't see, there's nothing on the horizon that tells me that it's going to significantly diminish hackers and malware from being successful and being more successful. We actually have ways of making the internet far safer than it is today. We're just not going to do those things. That's the unfortunate thing. It's it's hard to get people around your dinner table to agree on what to do in a given day. It's much harder to get the world to come together in a kumbaya moment and say that we're going to go fix the internet. It can be done. Will it be done? No, that's like trying to get Congress to make a, a significant solution. It's just really difficult. Right. Really challenging. And I one of the things that I wanted to ask, even though it's not necessarily within your subject matter expertise, 
But along the lines of things getting worse, and you mentioned ransomware in particular, do you feel like there's a corollary between the kind of uprising of bad actors in, say, Russia, South Korea, China, the disintegration of some of this geopolitical unity that may have occurred after World War II, and these bad actors now have freer reign to operate within this space? Yeah, I, I, I think you can say that. I, I think there's always been a problem. So nation states and people acting on behalf of nation states and bad hackers that are at least being allowed to do the bad thing because the nation states turning a blind eye, that's been going on for decades. I mean, since the, literally the, the, the 70s, 1970s. Uh, it is much worse today. And I think the first part is we don't have a Geneva Convention, a digital Geneva Convention, like in conventional warfare, kinetic, which I think is so wild that we have to give it a name, kinetic warfare, the real bloody stuff. Well, we realized that we were starting to do a lot of terrible things in war. And then we got together and made the, the Geneva Conventions that said you can't use poison mustard gas and you can't just shoot prisoners and you have to wear uniforms. And so the world came together and said, we're going to try to follow these Geneva conventions about what's allowed in kinetic warfare. Let me say there are some people that don't. We know that we're sometimes fighting people that don't wear uniforms and stuff, but it's considered to be a war crime if you're violating the Geneva conventions. Well, we do not have the same thing in the digital world, and we've been trying to create a digital Geneva convention. The UN in particular has been trying to create one for at least, as far as I know, two decades it's really difficult for it to occur because every time us and our allies suggest a really good Geneva Conventions for the online world, Russia and China are usually against us. And then usually when Russia and China put forth something, we're usually against it because we don't feel that Russia and China is being genuine with what they're trying to do. And let me say, for sure, China has been hacking us for decades. They've stolen nearly every intellectual property secret America has had for decades. Russia is responsible for most of the ransomware. North Korea funds a lot of its country and even nuclear ambitions using stolen cryptocurrency. And we know for sure that it's being done. But part of the problem is that we don't have that digital Geneva Convention. Number two, it's, it's sometimes it's tough to say what is or isn't allowed when your country is possibly involved in some stuff. Like we... we our U.S. government has probably got some of the best nation state hackers. And, and let me say, I believe that our intent, I don't think I'm being blind by saying this uh, or naive. I think that our intentions are pretty good. We're not trying, or at least they're traditional. We're not doing ransomware. America and the NSA and the CIA and the FBI aren't putting out ransomware that attacks Chinese and Russian companies and say, pay us $10 million or we're going to shut your company down. I think that our nation state is traditional nation state incentives, meaning that we're going after intellectual property and, and materials that relate to the military and the governments. And, and that's just what traditional military spycraft has always been about. And I think that's what America mostly does. But then like a couple of years ago, we did one of the more sophisticated nation state malware programs called Stuxnet, which took out Iranian centrifuges that were being used to illegally spin up nuclear fuel for nuclear bombs. And we, we successfully used it to blow up all kinds of Iranian centrifuges that we couldn't have done even using kinetic warfare, or there would have been a lot more blood. And from my perspective, it looked like the least bloody option. But when your country is using malware to attack another country's nuclear. Imagine if Iran had taken out American nuclear infrastructure. Uh, there, that 
possibly would have caused a kinetic war response. So it really gets convoluted where you say, okay, we need to define what is or isn't allowed. Like, I think everybody would agree that nobody should be attacking hospitals. Like, that seems like to be a really common sense approach. But we can't even get agreement on that because someone's, well, I don't want you to attack. I, I think in America, there's like 16 different protected infrastructures, like the energy, or, you know, like the, uh, so that nuclear and conventional energy stuff, things like our travel, like the rail systems and airplanes. So there really becomes to be a lot of stuff that we and other people would say, well, you really, you shouldn't attack that. But it's really tough because some of the other countries say, well, you shouldn't attack us and this. You shouldn't attack our our nuclear centrifuges. And so there's a lot of finger pointing. And so there's been decades where the UN's been trying to put together a Geneva Convention. And then I think like, Brian, what you alluded to is that I think that we have such poor relations that there is, I think a lot of nation states, especially China and Russia, see benefit that their hackers are successfully attacking us and causing us strife. And they think anytime America is trying to put down a significant attack, like maybe the colonial gas pipeline attack last year, maybe two years ago, that they feel that, hey, that's good. It's good to have our enemies or our adversaries, I guess is a better word, where they're being caught up in having to fight this thing. And anytime my adversary is wasting time, money, and resources fighting this thing, that benefits us. So I think you're right, Brian. I think if we had better relationships, there would be less nation state hacking for sure. There's so much I want to ask you. So the ransomware issue is super interesting to me, right? I remember reading this long form article. I think it was the New Yorker, the Atlantic about the negotiators that specialize in cutting those deals with the ransomware Mm -hmm. operators, mostly out of Russia. The scary thing is oftentimes it's done in the dark, right? Those deals are cut without anyone knowing because it's critical infrastructure or healthcare What's your guess on the percentage, like out of the ones that we know about, how many more are occurring that we just never see the light of day? There's a lot. I'm aware of a lot of companies that that saw that settled and and, did, and didn't tell the world. And I'm always surprised sometimes there's someone can pay five or ten million dollars and it doesn't get leaked out. But I would say that it's not a significantly higher percentage if you just like percentage wise. And let me say this: as far as we know, less companies are paying the ransom than ever before. A couple of years ago, I would tell people it was 50 to 75% of the victims were paying the ransom. Today, we're pretty confident it's in the low 40s or lower and getting lower. It appears over time that it's getting lower for a couple of different reasons. I think, number one, there's a lot of ransomware players that even if you paid them, you didn't, like most people that pay the ransom didn't get all their data back anyways for a variety of different reasons. Some people say they got hit again, and so why should I pay once? I I think a big part of it is just there's more of a generalized acceptance that if your company gets hit by ransomware and you don't pay and you're down for a length of time, I think there's more industry acceptance that, oh, you're going through a ransomware attack, and that's why you're having operational interruption, and that's why you had to spend millions of dollars, and you're going to come out of this stronger. I think five, 10 years ago, if you told someone you had a ransomware attack, you would worry about your reputational hit where like, oh my God, I I didn't take and do my due diligence correctly to keep the ransomware people out. Well, now there's so many victims and it's everybody. It's it's computer cybersecurity professionals. It's the strongest of the strong hospitals, law enforcement. They've all been taken down. And so I don't think 
companies have as much of a reputational hit. There's still a small percentage of companies that when they get hit have such a devastational operational impact that they actually get shut down. They cease to exist. They're, they go out of business or they get sold at a significantly cheaper discount than maybe they would have before. So you've got to survive the attack in the first place. You need to be cyber resilient. You want to try to prevent the attack in the first place from happening. If you get hit, you want to have early warning and detection in there. Many times the ransomware people are in that organization for days to months to even years. And so that organization have lots of opportunity to recognize it if they are just really looking. I, th- I think it's a different it's a different landscape today. So many people and so many companies have been victims of ransomware. I don't think it's quite the reputational hit that it used to be. Yeah, the crisis communication, I think, is probably improved and people just have a better understanding of it. Given that, do you have concerns about critical infrastructure in the U.S., be it energy, military? People always talk about how the grid is really exposed. Do do things like that keep you up at night? Not after 35 years, but let me say it's all hackable. It all can be taken down nearly at will. You know, our critical infrastructure, and it's not just me guessing this, it's CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, is telling us this. And let me say that the uh, CISA, I'm a, if you go to CISA.gov, I'm a huge fan of CISA.gov and Director Jen Easterly and her team. It is among the best cybersecurity organizations ever created, certainly the best we've ever created there's even an organization between CISA and, and the UK and some of our allies called Five, Eye, Five Eyes. And all together, they're the best at trying to fight ransomware and cybersecurity attacks at scale. They're not perfect, but they're doing like, they're actually going after the ransomware people. They're identifying who they are. They're getting back the money. They're proactively notifying organizations that they've been compromised. Like they recently shut down a thing called QuakeBot. Hundreds of thousands of organizations were compromised by a Russian Trojan called QuakeBot. CISA and the FBI and all that got together and got with the judges and lawyers. It took a long time and not only shut down the QuakeBot bot network around the world, but they actually proactively uninstalled it. They actually sent a command that uninstalled that bot. So as long as that's the only thing you have in your system, because QuakeBot's also used to distribute other malware like ransomware, but if that's the only thing you have in your system, you're then clean. So I'm a huge fan of CISA. Yeah, and like I say, they've made tremendous inroads. As a matter of fact, last year, they actually decreased the amount of ransomware attacks that we were seeing for the first time in, in decades. Ransomware has been around since 1989 and just got worse every single year. But last year, it actually went down, I believe, solely because of CISA and, and the actions of them and their partners. But this year, ransomware is headed back up mainly because the criminals are attacking a lot of unpatched software on on people's devices and things like this. They're not attacking Windows and Apple computers. They're attacking your routers and your, what, what they call the Internet of Things, right? And they're just being aggressive as possible. So this year, we're actually starting to see an increase in ransomware. We're hoping we're all crossing our fingers saying, you know, was 2021 the start of something great or was it a one-time anomaly? Right now, it seems like it's a one-time anomaly. But uh, I think uh, I've been encouraged by what CISED has done and the more and more that they're allowed to do things because they, they're only allowed to do so much by congressional law. But the more that they're allowed to do things, the better they're going to protect us in the world. A lot of our listeners are private investors. What about 
financial institutions. Let's go private for now. But there's always this, there is this narrative that the larger these banks get, and there's a lot of consolidation within the, the financial services industry, the more and more they have to spend on cybersecurity. And there's an industry of guys who go around scaring ultra high net worth individuals and families, family offices especially, about how vulnerable they are to all kinds of attacks, be it in their home office or through these institutions. What are your thoughts there? Well, we're spending enough money on cybersecurity. We're not focusing on the right things. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. I said this at the beginning of the talk. I'm going to say this again. If you're listening right now, what I'm getting ready to say is the key to successfully defending yourself and your organization and your interest is that 70 to 90% of successful attacks is social engineering and phishing. 33% of it is unpatched software. Those two, and let me say, there's lots of other ways you can be compromised. There's tons of other ways I can compromise you. Those two ways that I just mentioned, social engineering, phishing, unpatched software, and firmware, I guess you'd say, is responsible for almost all of it. And the, the sad thing is, and the reason why we're hacked so much, is that there isn't a person or organization on this planet that spends 3% of their IT budget or IT security budget to fight those things. We're spending too much time concentrating on the wrong things and wondering why it doesn't work. It is precisely only because we have a fundamental misalignment between our resources that we're spending against the things they should be spent against. Like right now for social engineering, I tell people, you if you don't want to be attacked at home, your business, don't be tricked in social engineering, easier said than done, and patch your software, easier said than done. But if you spent most of your efforts trying to do those two things, and if you did those two things relatively well, you probably would not be successfully attacked. Yeah, the attacker is going to go after weaker targets. But like in America today, the... The requirement to teach people not to be social engineered is they need to have like one 15-minute education thing once a year. If it's responsible for 70 to 90%, if social engineering efficient is responsible for 70 to 90% of all attacks, shouldn't we have a requirement that's more than once a year? It's just, it really is crazy. I, and I've known this for decades, and I'm out there trying to tell people, literally, whether you fall or not, is based upon how well you focus on two things. And you buying the latest you like latest gizmo or people go, what antivirus do you like, Roger? They're all horrible. They're all. Even if you get the very best one versus the very worst one, they don't work. All that think about oh, people say you can have a firewall and a VPN and antivirus and all that stuff. Every single company in business successfully hit by ransomware had that. It isn't like the person, oh, if I just had a VPN, I wouldn't have been attacked. No. And if you ask them how they were successfully attacked, it was social engineering, unpacked software, and kind of related to the social engineering is a lot of times people reuse the same password. You should be using phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, preferably like one of those keys. Uh, Google Authenticator is not going to save you. 
Microsoft Authenticator is not going to save you. The push-based authentication, when you get the little prompt on your phone, do you want to allow? That's not going to save. You want to get a phishing-resistant form of multi-factor authentication, like what they call a FIDO key or a Yuba key or something like that. Even smart cards are good. But you want to use that to protect you know, a, a multi-factor authentication, a good multi-factor authentication solution. Because what happens is most people get a couple of passwords and reuse them across everything. And then one of those websites gets compromised or you get social engineered out of your password because you thought you were responding to the real LinkedIn or the real cryptocurrency person you're dealing with. And then it's just game over. So what are some, you mentioned a few things, but just like basics here. If we're spending the wrong allocation of resources against what you think the threat level is correlation wise, what are I think people don't even know the questions to ask, right? Because it all feels so overwhelming. So if you are a high net worth individual, a family office, and you're trying to figure out your IT spend, or if you have an IT professional third-party vendor, what are the two or three questions you need to ask them to make sure you're just getting the basics right before you go esoteric and all of these other kind of down-the-line issues? Yeah, uh, almost no one's got it right. So when you ask them the question, they're not going to get, I'm telling you the answer. Everybody else either doesn't understand what the solution is, or they're just trying to sell your product. Let me say, I I work full-time for a company called Noblefore. We try to fight social engineering and phishing. So I could be lying to you. I could be telling you of this, of my own self-interest where I'm trying to promote Noblefore. I'm not. The whole reason I work at Noblefore is because the number one problem is social engineering and phishing. If you're going to buy a product from someone, you need to say, what do you do to try to stop social engineering and phishing? And they're going to tell you, oh, we run antivirus and we have a VPN and we have a firewall and we have uh, content filtering. All of that can help, but it is not going to help you as good as you understanding what social engineering and phishing is. You need to get yourself, your family your friends, anyone that works for you to understand that social engineering and phishing is the most likely way you are to be compromised and how to recognize what that is. Now, this is what I tell people. If you get an unexpected message, no matter how that message arrives, email, social engineering, website, uh, social media, I mean, um, phone call, SMS message, if you get an unexpected message that you were not expecting and they're asking you to do something you've never done before, for them, for the, for the sender, and that request, if harmful, could harm you or your organization's interest, don't do it. Research it another way. Call the person that's requesting it on a known good phone number. Go directly to the company's real website instead of clicking on the URL. So let me say this again. You need to make a default healthy skepticism of any message, any unexpected message you get if they're asking you something you haven't done before, and if doing so, if malicious, could harm your own interest, somehow confirm it before you do it. That's what you need to teach yourself, your family, and everybody in your organization. Number two, you need to make sure that you patch the software and firmware that's involved with your money. And let me say, you don't have to patch everything. Uh, In a given year, there's about 25,000 different patches. But what we found out is only about 2 to 4% of those patches are ever exploited by any real-world bad guy against any real-world company. Let me say that again. Only about 2 to 4% of unpatched vulnerabilities are ever used by any hacker ever. 
And you're like, well, Roger, that's great. That's all I have to patch is 2 to 4% and not everything. How do I know what the 2 to 4% is? CISA. If you go to CISA, CISA.gov, they have a list there called the Known Exploited Vulnerability Catalog. Known Exploited Vulnerability Catalog. Anything in that list is software or firmware that's being exploited by a hacker. And so what I tell people is you need to get a patching solution that looks at CISA's known exploited vulnerability catalog. Because I don't need to patch Windows perfectly or Apple perfectly or iOS perfectly, whatever it is you're worried about. But I do have to 100% patch perfectly anything that I have that's on the CISA known exploited vulnerability catalog list. So there's two things, teaching yourself and your loved ones, your family and your coworkers and your employees how to recognize a phishing attack, no matter how it comes, and patching the software that hackers like to exploit, that is 99% of the game. The odds that you'll be compromised any other way is significantly less. And if you throw, I use, if you use good multi-factor authentication, phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, you do that, you're just not going to be hacked. Like all the other ways that you could be hacked, and there's still a lot of other ways, all added up together aren't 1% of the problem. But if you don't handle the two or three things that I just talked about, well, you're going to be a victim. But if you concentrate and focus on them, well, you're not going to be a victim. It really is the, how well you concentrate on those two or three things is whether or not you're going to be a victim one day. Yeah, in my business, we receive and send a lot of wires. And it's wild to me the high net worth individuals and families we work with, some of whom are very sophisticated that don't do verbal confirmations, we require them. But sometimes it just gets sent surreptitiously. And man, it's serious dollars that just get sent out into the ether without confirming with the human. It's crazy in a lot of ways to me in this day and age. But yeah. You're, you're exactly right, Brian. And that's why you set people up when you're doing business with me. You say, hey, I'm not going to send you the, all the wiring instructions you know, via fax or email, you're going to have to call me to get the last four digits or whatever it might be. Like you try to set, if you can, try to set up policies that make it difficult for the bad guys to be successful. If you say, hey, we're never, by policy in my company, you're not allowed to update wiring instructions, bank account information without directly calling the person to get confirmation because you can't trust the email. You can't trust a text message. You can't trust a fax. Anybody can claim to be anybody. And so if you make it a policy that hopefully makes it harder for the bad guy to be successful, that's win-win. Yeah. So you referenced AI earlier, and you, I think I may get this wrong, but you said you weren't very concerned about it. What's happening within the AI cybersecurity world, and what are your thoughts about, is it going to be this game-changing technology or not as much within your kind of focus area. Yeah. I, I, when I say that, I'm not as worried about AI. I meaning I'm trying not to be one of those scareware people because I think 99% of the media is, hey, you should be scared. Oh my God, the, the, the sky is falling. I've been doing this a long time and I've heard the sky is falling a whole lot for a long time. Let me say, that I think AI is a game changer, paradigm, industry, internet changing the rest of our lives. It, it is AI is, and I'll say I've got other game changers like quantum that are right on the horizon that I'm quite familiar with. And quantum is going to be just as game changing as AI. 
But AI is now, we're in the middle of it. You're, we're feeling the world change. Just like we went from not you know, having all of our records in a plastic record collection, and then it went to an iPod where you have your whole, and now it's in the cloud and follows you everywhere. Now I can ask a, a, any phone a question that gives me an answer. But it's amazing. AI is game-changing, changing the world for sure. And AI is also going to be used by bad people to commit scams, is being used by bad people to do scams. And it's allowing people that aren't that sophisticated to appear more sophisticated. I've already said that like social engineering is involved in 70 to 90% of all successful scams. AI is going to allow them to be more successful, but I think it's it's going to make them 92% successful. So it's already really bad. And what it's going to allow is the the worst, the, the least prepared players to appear more sophisticated. But what kind of saves us is that, remember, AI was invented by the good guys. It was invented by companies decades ago. My, like my company know before, we've been using AI to better protect people for five years. Like we are AI actually, you can actually choose whether or not to use our AI. But if you do, it is able to successfully trick people. When we send out what's called simulated phishing tests, where we send out these fake emails to see who would be susceptible to a, to a real phishing attack, the AI-generated and selected phishing simulations are able to fool people more often than when a human chooses that test. Well, that helps that person. When you're fooled by a simulated phishing test, you're actually less likely to be fooled by a real phishing test because you found out, hey, I'm fishable. This is what it looked like. And you're getting this education. A person that never fails a simulated phishing test thinks they're invincible and is actually more likely to fall for a real world phishing test. So we've been using AI for five years to better prepare our, our customers but every company I know is using AI to make better defenses. So the whole narrative in the media, the worldwide ma- ma- narrative is criminals are using AI. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, but the good guys have been using it, invented it, and we're using it. And, and like what I think we'll see, and the reason why it doesn't scare me, is that our AI-driven defense tools are going to be able to recognize the AI criminal tools better. So I do think it is a concern but it's not a one-sided equation where the bad guy has has all the fruits of, of AI. It's on both sides. It tends to be a war back and forth. And so I think they are going to gain a couple of percentage points, but it's really bad. Like if you were to tell me, Roger, AI is going from 90 to 92%, that's concerning, but we're already at 90%. And it's not like if I told you, we, oh, we're using AI, we went from 90 to 88%, you're not going to be happy. I think the change that AI is bringing is significant, but it's like ransomware is so utterly devastating already <laughs> that so what if there's a few more ransomware attacks a year because of AI? It's really, really bad already without AI. We don't even need AI in the equation for it to be really, really bad and really, really devastating. But what I want to close with you just saying is that AI is going to be used to help better defend people. We're coming out with tools that use AI to stop the bad AI. And that's the, the future of computer security is like the good guys, AI-driven bot against the bad guys, AI-driven bot. And then the best algorithm wins. You know, a decade ago, if you're a really smart mathematics engineering person, you would go be an algorithm creator for one of the big finance firms. The parent would say, my son's an algo and he's making six figures, three, $300,000, $400,000. 
I think the smart algos, the high paid algos of the next decade are going to be people creating the algorithms for these AI driven bonds. Yeah. So situation where it's a, sh- a sword and a shield in a lot of ways, and it's just going to be this kind of seesaw back and forth. As we round out the conversation, talk about quantum and what is on the horizon, what you see coming. Yeah, sure. Let me say, I've written a book about it, and I belong to the Cloud Security Alliance's Quantum Safe Security Working Group. And I, I wrote their major white paper, and I belong to the World Economic Forum's Quantum Work Group as well. And that, if you don't know this, in the next couple of years, we're going to have to upgrade uh, all of our traditional asymmetric encryption. Encryption is what makes the internet work. It makes the banking system work. Like when you connect on the internet and you get HTTPS and that lock icon, uh, that's only working because of this encryption. And quantum computers are these new type of computers. They were first actually put into practice in 1999. And since then, we've been making steady progress on making more and more powerful quantum computers. And today, the most powerful quantum computer probably doesn't have the processing power that's on your wristwatch. But within the next couple of years, if not already, if the government doesn't already have it, we're going to have what's called cryptographically sufficient quantum computers that are going to be able to break today's traditional encryption. And it's the encryption that makes the internet work, that makes the banking industry work, that makes cryptocurrencies work. And we're going to have to upgrade everything, Windows, Linux, Apple, every piece of software and hardware you have is going to have to be cryptographically, the, the cryptographic algorithms are going to have to be upgraded to what's called post-quantum cryptography or quantum-resistant cryptography. And NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has already released uh, the first couple of quantum-resistant cryptographic standards. They've already been released. And in the next couple of years, every person in this world is going to have to upgrade everything they have to these new cryptographic extensions. Every company is going to have a project, a multi-year project, upgrading everything that has encryption in it. But you need to start, if you have an organization today, you need to start now by making people aware because you're going to be dedicating significant capital to this upgrade in the next couple of years. And most people don't even know it's around. So you need to make people aware that, hey, we have this coming project. Start looking for this quantum thing. Uh, I certainly have lots of information articles. You can write a book on it. But you need to, today at the very least, start making what's called a data protection inventory in your company. If you have company, data protection inventory that lists all the software and hardware that you have what encryption that it uses so that when you're told that you have to replace it all, you know what has to be replaced, what can be updated, and what you have to buy new. And let me say, this is not just me saying it. This is the U.S. government screaming at people, you need to be prepared now. You need to start preparing now because, again, very soon you're going to be committing, if you have a company, you're going to be committing capital and having potentially lots of consultants then helping you to do what's called a post-quantum migration, getting all your software and hardware from its existing cryptography algorithms to the post-quantum resistant cryptographic algorithm. So I know the follow-up question for my audience will be, how can I make money on this? Yeah, there's there's uh, dozens of companies that will help you do that data protection inventory. There are people that will help you implement and do all that stuff. It's kind of funny when I'm in the quantum world talking to all the quantum people, the quantum companies, get this, 
They're shocked that the entire world doesn't know about quantum. They think all the people in the quantum world think that every single business in the world knows about quantum and knows how important it is to get working on it. When I tell them, I, I give talks on quantum all the time. And if there's a hundred people in the audience, maybe four know what I'm talking about. I tell them, no, most of the world doesn't know. Most of the world is not preparing, uh, even though we've been yelling it from the rooftops for a long time. Uh, but there, there's lots of companies out there that are, are doing it. And let me say, I did a, uh, I invested in one of the first quantum stocks and it's not doing so well. I think it went negative 50%. I lost so much money. I'm like, why just, I'm just hanging in there. <laughs> I've made some back, but you know, I, I don't know if I knew how to successfully invest in quantum stocks, uh, I would tell you. But I will say there's a lot of companies out there, a lot, of, probably a lot of companies whose names we don't know today that we will know in a couple of years because they got into the quantum piece early and they're making a ton of consulting money on it. Yeah. Interesting. Roger, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been incredible. You're an unbelievable resource. So much kind of quality content on your website, as well as speaking engagements that you put on. If people are interested in, in engaging with you, either as a keynote or the services your firm provides, what's the best way for them to find out more? Yeah, yeah. Just email me at Roger G. So R-O-G-E-R-G at knowbefore.com. That's K-N-O-W. B is in boy, E, the number four.com. So Roger G at nobefore.com. I'd be glad to answer any questions you send my way. I've got lots of articles and links and things I can send to you on everything I talked about. But thank you so much, Brian, for having me speak to you and, and everybody today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a great conversation. We could have gone on. I got through half my questions. So we'll have to have you back on when the world's even scarier in six months, I'm sure. Please do leave us a review, comment, let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Roger, one question we ask folks to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I would say working out. All I know is when I do a little bit of workout, I run or work out in the gym. I just have a better clarity of thought. Roger, thank you again. I strongly encourage people to check out the website and the speaking that Roger does. It's an unbelievable resource for everybody. And we all need to get smarter on this. So thank you again for coming on. Sure. Thank you. And good luck, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.